Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Um, before we get started, let me just point out a couple quick things. Uh, first of all, there are a number of materials uh, related to healthcare that were available on our table outside there. Um, if, for, if for some reason you didn't pick one up or uh, pick up some of those, uh, those papers or uh, you're interested in learning a little bit more about Cato's research on healthcare or any topic, uh, of course, you can visit our website, cato.org. Uh, we also have an excellent blog, catoatliberty.org. So uh, check those out. They're great resources. In addition to pretty much all of our materials, uh, it'll also uh, uh, have archives of um, events like this one today. So if you watch this, uh, this presentation and are blown away by it, want to watch it again, can do so at cato.org. Uh, you can pass it along to your friends and your colleagues. Um, also, one, one of the things that was out there on that table that you may not have picked up is an invitation to a conference we're having on June 17th on health care reform. This is going to be a great event. It's an all-day conference uh, meant to kind of look at various approaches, not just Cato's preferred free market approach, but also approaches from all over the political spectrum on how we should fix our health care system. We have a really impressive lineup of speakers, uh, so check that out. You can get more information by picking up this card on your way out or, again, checking out our website. Um, there is a $50 registration fee to attend, but we, uh, we can waive that for, for some Hill staffers. So if you're interested in attending again, uh, just let me know. With that, I'll go ahead and introduce our, uh, our speaker for today's event. Uh, Arnold Kling is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Uh, he, is an, he was formerly an economist on the staff of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, also previously served as a senior economist at uh, Freddie Mac. Um, he is the author of several books, including Crisis of Abundance, which is an excellent book on health care that the Cato Institute published a couple years ago. If, if you're interested in getting a copy of this, you can let me know or another, uh, another Cato staffer, Kurt Couchman's over there. Um, I'd be happy to get you the, a copy of that book free of charge for Hill staffers. Uh, he also co-edits uh, an excellent blog called EconLog. Uh, Kling received his Ph.D. in economics from MIT in 1980. And with that, I'll turn things over to Arnold Kling. Yeah. Get this out of my face here. All right. <clears throat> okay, well, I uh, basically want to talk about... Uh, the economics of healthcare, and then a little bit about the politics of healthcare policy. I'm not uh, into the details of every uh, specific proposal that's out there, just more generically about uh, the economics and the politics. And I want to set uh, low expectations on two dimensions. Uh, on the economics, I'm going to set low expectations that I'm going to say anything that I haven't said before. Um, I wrote this this book, uh, I guess, you know, in terms of writing it at least three years ago. And my line is that the facts haven't changed, so I haven't changed my mind. So when I talk about the economics of health care, I'm just going to pretty much reiterate points from the book. And as the politics, I'm going to set low expectations for people who are, you know, conservative or market-oriented or whatever, that I have a... Uh, kind of political cure-all, uh, and because I don't, I, I think the politics are going to be uh, pretty bad. Uh, I think that my my prediction is the Democrats will position it as uh, their their mantra is going to be uh, expand health coverage first, worry about costs later, uh, or as I put it, uh, dessert now, spinach later. And for the dessert phase, uh, they don't need or want uh, bipartisanship. 
Uh, it would be ideal if they could expand coverage with no Republican votes. Uh, and then in a few years, when the uh, unsustainability and unaffordability of what they put in place uh, begins to bite, that's at the point where they'll invite bipartisanship and ask for Republicans to be statesmanlike in coming up with ways to get people to eat their spinach. Um, all right, so <clears throat> let me start with um, mentioning a couple of the handouts that you have. One of them is this article by Atul Gawande that appeared just, I don't know, I only saw it a few days ago in The New Yorker. Um, and the other is something that was about six weeks ago, an interview with somebody whose identity I've concealed and just said it was a health care policy wonk. Uh, both those articles point to the issue of health care costs as really the big kind of elephant in the room in the health care field. And they also point to the fact that health care costs are driven to a large extent by extravagant use of medical procedures that have high costs and low benefits. So I think in general, you know, health care policy wonks understand this. The health care policy wonk that was interviewed in the Thing six weeks ago is Barack Obama. Uh, Obama, I think if he and I were sitting on a panel uh, in a relatively private setting discussing health care and what's going on, I don't think we would be that far apart. Uh, but as a politician and president, he has other responsibilities, and I think those other responsibilities will lead him to deal with health care in a way that's very different from what a policy wonk would deal with. Okay, so that's sort of a, a prelude to this. Let me just whip through the uh, five points about the economics of health care. And these are, again, all, all in the book, Crisis of Abundance. First, uh, picture a triangle with the top is sustainability, affordability, a sustainable, affordable health care system. Uh, over here is a system where people have unlimited access to procedures. That is, there's no rationing of health care. And then over here is people have, uh, don't have to pay for their health care services. They're insulated from having to pay for them. And so what we want as individuals is to have unlimited access to medical services without having to pay for them, as we want to be at these, include both these points in the triangle. The problem with that is that if you give everybody unlimited access to medical services without having to pay for them, what you end up with is an unsustainable, affordable, unaffordable system, so you have a problem with the top of the triangle. And you can't be at all three points in the triangle at the same time. That's kind of my first point. Um, and where I think the debate has logically should be, assuming that we uh, understand the need for a sustainable, affordable health care system, the debate is between how you're, going to receive, how you're going to achieve that, whether you're going to restrain people's use of medical services by rationing or by self-restraint based on people confronting the cost of their services and having to pay more out-of-pocket and make different decisions based on the uh, having to pay out-of-pocket. So it, it, the real debate ought to be between rationing by uh, centralized management or rationing by the decentralized price system. Uh, I've never met anyone from the left who wants to have that toe-to-toe -to -toe debate. They've got all sorts of debating tactics for evading that. Um, and that's 
you know, so I, I've never actually engaged in that debate. It would be, it would be I, I think there, I could, I could debate that from either side, by the way. I could make a case that it would be morally superior to have government do rationing. I mean, I don't believe ultimately that is the, the right answer. I think that's, you know, I, I don't think the left is hopeless if they try to get into that debate, but they'd rather not. Okay, so that's the first point is that there's this triangle. You can't be at all three points on the triangle. Second point is that there's a large gray area in medicine. Uh, that is, the gray area is procedures that are neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. In the, uh, <clears throat> in the handout with the interview with the wonk with Barack Obama, he mentions that his grandmother had terminally ill cancer and had uh, hip surgery. And you can see from the tone of it, he's not really sure that that hip surgery was really worthwhile in the end because you know, her health went downhill rapidly afterward. Um, and ironically, there's a lot of similarity with, between that and uh, what I experienced with my father about a year and a half ago. Uh, again, terminally ill cancer, hip surgery, and then just a rapid downhill from that. Um, and so those, you know, that's a morally fraught issue, and that's, you know, so it's, um, it, it's maybe a more extreme example of the, of the gray area of maybe it's not absolutely necessary, maybe it's not absolutely unnecessary. Uh, there are plenty of other examples of the gray area. The one I like to use the most is, uh, for those of us over 50, happy birthday, you're supposed to get a routine colonoscopy screening to screen for colon cancer. And uh, that's not absolutely necessary. In Canada, they don't do that. In Canada, they don't have the equipment or the specialists needed to do uh, colonoscopy screenings on healthy people to screen, you know, to, as a screening for colon cancer. And that may be the right decision. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the cost per life saved from that, doing that is you know, on the order of a million dollars or perhaps more. And so from a bureaucrat's point of view, you could say, well, you know, if I'm going to optimize the mix of services, I'm not going to spend a million dollars to save a life by putting everybody through colon, over 50 through colonoscopy screening every five years. Um, more likely what they're saying is, uh, of all the ways to ingratiate ourselves with voters, uh, colonoscopy screenings is not, you know, that's not going to win a whole lot of popularity contests, so maybe that's, that's why we don't allocate a whole lot of resources to that. Um, I can see a lot of people are too young to appreciate what experiencing a colonoscopy is like, so you don't realize that, that that's not a way to win a popularity contest. Um, so, but that would be something... Now, so it's not absolutely necessary that you, that you go through this protocol of uh, having a colonoscopy screening every five years. Having said that, uh, I've done, you know, I go through that protocol. Uh, I've looked at the research on it. Uh, I buy into it. I mean, it's a, it really is a way of preventing colon cancer. Um, you know, not just spotting it early, but actually preventing. So, um, you know, so... I would say that the colonoscopy protocol is not absolutely unnecessary either. It's not absolutely necessary, not absolutely unnecessary. And I think it's very important to understand this gray area. Uh, Peter Orszag, who was the head of the Congressional Budget Office, is now head of the Office of Management Budget, will throw out this figure, 30% of health care spending in this country is unnecessary. And it's 
helpful and unhelpful for him to say that. It's helpful in the sense that it points out where the really big driver of excess costs is in uh, healthcare spending in the U.S. comes from our choice of medical procedures. So in that sense, it's helpful to say something like 30% unnecessary. But it's also very unhelpful to use the term unnecessary as if this is a binary issue, that there's a very bright line dividing necessary and unnecessary health care. Because the truth is there's a huge gray area. My guess is that the amount of spending on procedures that is absolutely unnecessary is probably way less than 5%. It's not nowhere near 30%. Um, on the other hand, the, the amount that's spent on clearly necessary procedures might only be a quarter. And then in the middle is this huge gray area, two-thirds or more of spending that's neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. So that's my second point, that there's a very big gray area. And when you do... Uh, you know, so when Peter Orszag talks about doing comparative effectiveness research. I'm actually all for comparative effectiveness research, but I don't think it's going to create a dividing line between absolutely necessary and absolutely unnecessary. I think what it's going to do is going to shed more light on this gray area, but it's not going to dictate what ought to be done in every case. It's not going to dictate to individual doctors or individual patients what the right choice should be. Um, at most, it'll give a little bit more statistical guidance, but it is not going to be a uh, is not going to divide the world into necessary and unnecessary procedures. There will still be a large gray area. We'll just know a little bit more about some of the probabilities involved. Okay, so that third economic point is what I call insulation versus insurance. Uh, nobody here has health insurance. People who have health coverage have something that pays for an awful lot of medical procedures, uh, way more than what would be covered by real insurance. Real insurance, think of fire insurance, is something that rarely pays claims, pays claims in very large dollar amounts that would otherwise be a catastrophic loss, and has low affordable premiums. What we call health insurance is the opposite. You make everybody makes uh, claims on their health insurance every year. They make them for small dollar amounts, and the premiums are enormous. I mean, you, you might not see the premiums, but the typical employer is paying about five thousand dollars for individual, about twelve thousand dollars for a family in terms of premiums. So, the, so it's not insurance. Whatever it is, it's not real insurance. It's misnamed to call it insurance. Real insurance would be something that you only collected on maybe uh, on average once in your lifetime or less. Again, think of fire insurance. How many people have never collected on fire insurance? Probably a lot of people have never collected on it. Uh, and with Health insurance, you should only collect on it if you really accumulate sort of tens of thousands of dollars of, of, spend of medical services over a period of years. Or you should only collect on it if you were diagnosed with a really expensive chronic illness. So if you break your wrist, 
you know, and that's going to cost $5,000, $10,000. That's not a catastrophic illness. That, that actually puts you within the normal range of health care spending. Um, you know, on average, we spend about $6,000 per capita per year. So to really be outside the norm and to have an insurable expense, you need to have, you know, chronic, be diagnosed with a really expensive chronic illness, you know, classic being diabetes. So the uh, real insurance would only uh, pay a, you know, let's say the, the 5% most uh, expensively sick people, and the rest of us would just be paying premiums every year in case some year, you know, in case at some point in our lives we turn into being one of the extremely sick people. Okay, so the, the fourth point that I want to make is that Medicare is unsustainable. You know, sometimes when I say that, you know, one of the ways that I, the left will try to evade this debate between rationing and uh, self-restraint by people having to pay for health care out of pocket is they'll say, well, you guys always say that, that uh, if the government takes over health care, we'll have rationing, but look at Medicare. We don't have rationing. And my line is, yeah, look at Medicare. Medicare faces tens of trillions of dollars of unfunded liabilities. Uh, Medicare keeps growing faster than the economy. So if you just left Medicare on course, you know, if it keeps growing faster than the economy, it, you know, you extrapolate out that, lo- that out long enough, it becomes the economy. And, and that's unsustainable. The unfunded liabilities are the gap between what we're promising future recipients and the taxes we expect to collect to pay for them. And that gap, again, is in the tens of trillions of dollars. Uh, people are clearly aware of that, and Peter Orzag's been sounding the alarm about that for, for uh, quite some time. And I refer to those unfunded liabilities as the, you know, that Medicare is the fiscal equivalent of the Titanic, uh, and those unfunded liabilities are the iceberg that it's headed toward. So then the, the fifth point I'll make, I'll, use, I'll pull up a fancy visual. Uh, these ten fingers, uh, they, each finger represents 10% of our health care spending. These five fingers represent the 50% of our health care spending that's paid for by government. These four fingers represent the 40% of our health care spending that's paid for by private health insurance. And this one finger represents the 10% of our spending that's paid for out-of-pocket. People on the left would like to have as much of our health care system as possible look like these five fingers, that is, paid for by government. And what a market-oriented health care system means, having as much of our health care system as possible paid for by what we now have is this one finger uh, paid for out-of-pocket. So your takeaway from that is that uh, market-oriented health care is a much more radical idea relative to what we have now than um, single-payer or government-provided health care. So uh, those of us on the free market side are in the position of being extremists, radicals, uh, proposing things that are very unlike what you've seen before, whereas people who are proposing single-payer or government-oriented health care system uh, are proposing something that's really quite familiar, although there, there's this ultimate issue of uh, sustainability with that.
Okay, so let me just review the five points. So we have the triangle. Uh, you can't have unlimited access to medical services without having to pay for it and still have a sustainable healthcare system. There's a large gray area of procedures that are neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. What we call insurance is really insulation. We're not None of us is familiar with any form of real health insurance. Uh, in the book, I describe one possibility. John Cochran has described another possibility in a recent Cato paper. Um, there are uh, ways to construct real health insurance, but we haven't seen it. Fourth point is that Medicare is on an unsustainable path. It's the fiscal equivalent of the Titanic. And the fifth point is about these ten fingers that uh, because right now only 10% of health care is paid for out of pocket, uh, moving to a system where a lot more health care is paid for out of pocket is a very radical idea. So free market health care is a very radical idea. Just as an aside, uh, there was an op-ed piece in the Sunday Washington Post about the demise of Marcus Welby, uh, you know, the person saying that, and, and basically the, the, the author argued that the reason that we don't have a Marcus Welby uh, consumer-friendly doctor today is that doctors have become greedy, and as because they become greedy, they've become beholden to insurance companies. And what the what I what the the author didn't point out is that uh, since Marcus Welby uh, was uh, you know, was in practice, he's a TV physician, so he obviously wasn't really in practice. But uh, since those days, the percentage of out-of-pocket spending has gone from about fifty percent down to about ten percent. So you don't have to use increased greed to explain why doctors are more beholden to third parties nowadays than they are beholden to patients, because patients are paying a much smaller fraction of the bill nowadays. And that's particularly true for a practicing doctor, because um, you know, if you think you know, 40, 50 years ago, people were paying 50% of their health care spending, it was probably way higher for anything that wasn't, didn't involve hospitalization. You know, if you subtracted out hospitalization and took, you know, who was paying for the typical doctor visit, uh, it was probably way more than 50% was coming from the patient. So, of course, doctors, even if they were no less greedy, would have been much more patient-oriented 40 or 50 years ago. Okay, so let me then talk about kind of a vision for market-oriented healthcare, And I just cannot emphasize enough how radical these ideas are. So, um, you know, in terms of short-term politics, uh, I, I, don't, I don't advise anybody to, to, uh, to move in this direction. Um, but the vision would be for much more out-of-pocket spending on health care so that people, when confronted with these gray area procedures, will be asking questions about costs and benefits. So that when I go to the doctor with, with a back pain and the doctor sends me for an MRI, instead of the, the only question being, will insurance pay for it, the question becomes, well, what are, the, what, what are you expecting to find on this MRI and how would it affect the treatment plan if you found it? And if you start asking tough questions like that, my prediction is you wouldn't go for that MRI. Uh, at least now that knowing what I know now, uh, I, I wouldn't do it. Um, 
you know, especially if, I, if, if I'm paying for it myself. Um, so much more out-of-pocket spending in order to get consumers to ask tough questions about gray area medicine. Um, in terms of government assistance, much more of what I would call voucherization. The, to the extent that government just reimburses fee-for-service, that's, uh, again, doesn't get people to ask tough questions about services. But if government is giving you, giving people vouchers to, uh, like, poor, for poor people to be able to afford this out-of-pocket spending or for very sick people to be able to get insurance when, you know, if, you, if it's clear that you've, you're a high risk, you, you would have trouble affording insurance. But if you had these uh, vouchers, then you don't have this unlimited spending. Uh, if, you, if the government financing is reimbursement, as in Medicare reimbursing people for procedures, there's you, the government has no control over its spending budget. But if it hands people instead a voucher, uh, then there is a clear budget, and the budget is uh, taken care of by individuals. So voucherization of government assistance is, I think, a key free market component. Uh, a third free market component uh, would be to allow for radical innovation in healthcare delivery. That is, you would not... In, you, you would get rid of a lot of the licensing restrictions um, so that you could have a variety of delivery vehicles out there ranging from the Marcus Welby model to a McMedicin model. And I think there are some circumstances in which each would be preferable. I think for the really complex patients, uh, the patients with a lot of comorbidities, I think a more corporate model actually is necessary in order to manage all the, the complexity involved. I, and I think for the extremely simple cases of somebody walking in with what seems like strep throat, again, a corporate model would work. In between, there are probably situations where a much more personalized medical model would work. But you have to, I think we have to let whatever is best emerge. And when we carefully regulate licenses and regulate the practice of medicine. We're not allowing new models to emerge. Anyway, um, and then speaking of allowing new models to emerge, I think the key, uh, a key to free market healthcare is allowing new models of insurance to emerge. Again, I don't think any of us has ever seen the type of insurance that I think ultimately ought to exist in healthcare, where it's, it's insured against extreme long-term catastrophic outcomes versus um, you know, what we call catastrophic health insurance, which, uh, where the upper limit is barely above the average amount of spending per capita. Okay, so, so market-oriented healthcare would allow for radical innovation in healthcare delivery, radical innovation in health, insur in health insurance. And again, because I'm a, a market-oriented libertarian, I'm not spelling out exactly which of those, exactly what the solution will look like in those areas. Uh, I have ideas, and there are some ideas in the book. But you know, when you're market-oriented, you're thinking that the market is going to come up with ideas, and if the ideas that I think would be best for people are not those that they prefer, then the market isn't going to pick those. Um, the voucherization of uh, government support for 
for health care and just in general more out-of-pocket payments. Um, I just want to wrap up with a, just a couple comments on sort of the near-term politics of health care. I've already given you my, my cynical uh, outlook. Um, what I would do, what I would try to do if I were uh, sort of a market-oriented congressperson, uh, you know, I, I don't think I would propose any of the uh, Arnold Kling reforms uh, and expect to get any votes for it. Um, one thing I would do is I would not try to defend private health insurance. I would not count it as a victory keeping the private health insurance companies standing. Um, I just wouldn't waste any political capital on that. Part of just personal attitude, we've, we haven't enjoyed our experiences with health insurance. Uh, in our family, the phrase going postal has been replaced by going health insurance. Um, you know, we, and I think there are enough people out there who've had trouble uh, collecting on claims that uh, I, I don't think it's, it, it wouldn't spend much political capital on it. But then in, in terms of the economics, I don't think we have the kind of health insurance that we ought to have. And so we, there's no necessary uh, need to, pres- to fight to preserve health insurance as we know it. Um, so that's, uh, that would be my first suggestion. Um, my second suggestion would be to support anything that moves in the direction of voucherization. So there seems to be seem to be people on both sides of the aisle now willing to talk about leveling the playing field between uh, getting health insurance through your employer and getting health insurance without your employer, and that that would be a good thing. So uh, people are talking about taxing. Uh, Employer-provided uh, health insurance, tra- you know, take, you know, counting that as a benefit as income for tax purposes, and that would help level the playing field. Um, the they're talking about using uh, this was actually, I guess, Mc- McCain's idea of using a tax credit rather than the employer ta- rather than the exemption of employer. Uh, provided health insurance from taxes. Again, anything that moves in that direction, probably a good idea. Um, Another challenge with leveling the playing field is the fact that uh, notwithstanding the Constitution, you're not allowed to sell health insurance across state lines except through a multi-state employer, you know, through ERISA. And to me, that's absurd. And I know that you know Republicans have proposed from time to time allowing you know a person in one state to buy a health insurance policy that meets the legal requ- requirements of another state. And I think that would be a, again a great idea to help level the playing field between getting insurance on your own and uh, getting it through your employer. Um, and just as an aside, I would I wouldn't mind anything that tends to uh, lead to less of less reliance on employer provided health insurance um, you know the, the employer provided health insurance is not not a good thing for a variety of reasons uh, the other thing that I would suggest that I, if, if I could sneak something into a bill without anything when noticing it it would be something to the effect that it allows government employees to 
get a some kind of refund for choosing a super catastrophic health insurance. That is something where the uh, deductibles and copayments are much higher than anything they have now. You see, I think the re- one reason that as an insurance company can't offer uh, the types of uh, radical health insurance, super catastrophic health insurance that I talk about, that is things that uh, would rarely pay claims to people uh, but would, and would only pay claims if they had really severe expensive illnesses. I think one of the obstacles to that, especially like let's say government employees, is that um, you, you wouldn't be, ta- as an insurance company, you wouldn't be taking advantage of the subsidy uh, where the government's paying the premium. So if the government, let's say, typically subsidizes, I don't know, let's say $3,000 worth of premiums for an individual, and you could sell an individual a health insurance policy that the premium would be $500, but it would, it would only pay off in these super catastrophic circumstances, uh, you don't have a way of offering that. You don't, you know, that difference between the $3,000 subsidy and your $500 cost would just show up as uh, extra profit to the government or the or whatever firm uh, was offering the policy. So you have to have some way to rebate that money to consumers for a really low premium insurance policy. So I would try to sneak something in that would allow people to opt for very low premium. Uh, super catastrophic insurance and and reap the benefits of it. I think I want to stop there um, and take as many requests as possible. I understand that's the way Bruce Springsteen is operating nowadays. He's just uh, taking requests. So if I I want to be the Bruce Springsteen of healthcare, I should just take the requests. 